So I wonder if you all remember this great saying attributed to Jesus in the Gospels. Where your treasure is, there your wallet will be also. Wait, I can get this one right. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, when we're speaking about treasures, we are often speaking about the heart. You know, treasure sermons often become sermons about money. It's hard to, to divorce the two. And I, and I wonder what your experience has been hearing sermons about money, about your, your, your treasure. You know, for me, I, I, this, is my first, this is the first sermon I've heard on treasure in six years, and I have, I have to give it. But, but prior to that, I used to hear sermons on, on money, on giving, about every four to five or so months. And, and it, was, it was like clockwork. The preacher would get up, he would make us all feel guilty about not using our money well, and then, lo and behold, there'd be a lot of giving. So every, this, and it was kind of rinse and repeat, every three to six months. You know, I also used to raise financial support. Some of you might know I used to do college ministry, and you had to, to raise your own financial team and, and gather people. And, and I remember sitting with a friend of mine, uh, and he was one of my supporters, and he was complaining about how one of my other friends was spending his money. My other friend was on support. And I just remember thinking, why is it that we who raise financial support from others are, are more accountable for what we do with it than my friend who, who was getting his money, his paycheck by his employer. You see, money is everywhere in our culture. See, the, the previous examples I just gave you were, were about money in and around the church, but wealth and, and, and treasure and finance and money, it, it pervades every crack and every crevice of our life. And, and as we know, money is often the source of most things that go wrong in our world. We've even developed this three-word phrase that has the potency of a dirty diaper. Follow the money, right? Because where you find a corrupt politician, you often find money. Where you find war, famine, poverty, you often find money. It's a truism because so often, if you follow the money, you will find the reasons things have gone wrong. So, that means money and wealth is evil, right? Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. All right, so if even Paul says follow the money, it must mean that money is evil. You know, but I don't quite think that's the point of what Paul is saying. You know, it's Jesus, who, who was no stranger to speaking up money, about money, who tells us, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. See, you'd be hard-pressed to find in all the Scripture where you will find money in and of itself condemned. You often find the opposite. Take, for example, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. 
see, this isn't a quid pro quo. This, this isn't I give to God and then, and then God's going to give me money bountifully. It's applying a general principle, as we've been speaking about in the Proverbs. Those who are generous with their wealth will be blessed by the Lord. No condemnation of wealth is found here in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, but a blessing of increase. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be financial increase. But let's also recall the parable that Jesus tells that was read to us by Trent earlier in the service. See, the wealthy man in, in, that, in that parable tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones to store his wealth. And, and then what does he do? He soothes his soul with the fact that he has provided for himself. And God comes and condemns him. But notice, God did not condemn him because he was wealthy. He condemned him because he built bigger barns to store his wealth because he was comforted by his wealth that he had provided for himself and not in the Lord who gave him that wealth. So the summary of of kind of the opening argument I've been seeking to make for you all is this. Wealth is amoral. Wealth is amoral, but our hearts are sinful. But our hearts are sinful. So let me just give you one disclaimer before we go into our sermon, or a couple. One is that we are not only talking about money this morning, but it is impossible to speak about treasures, which is the topic we've been given, and not deal on some level with money. Also, what you're going to find is that this is a topical sermon, so we are going to be going all over the place in Scripture, but what I've sought to do is to distill what I understand the argument of Proverbs to be, or one of the arguments of Proverbs to be, about wealth and about treasure and about money. So if you have your Bible and you're going to keep it open, I can't tell you where we're going to be. Just get ready to flip really fast. So first, wealth is amoral. All right, so our our possessions or our wealth are a measure of the things that we possess for the time that we possess them. That's what I mean by amoral. Our, Our wealth is neither good nor bad. It is their measurements. See, the size of our homes, the conditions of our cars, the size of our bank accounts, and the amount of material possessions that we have, they're not moral in and of themselves. See, I might have more stuff than you, but my abundance of stuff and your lack of abundance is neither a sign of the Lord's blessing in my life, nor is it a sign of the Lord's displeasure in your life. The Proverbs often actually speak to the opposite. It might be to my detriment that I have more material possessions than you do. Okay, Proverbs 15, 17. Here's what it says. Listen to this. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with turmoil. So this is to say it is better to eat a meager meal with friends with love than to feast in abundance while your life is spiraling out of control. Just one chapter over, in in chapter 16, verse 8, it says, Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. So notice what these two Proverbs are doing for us. See what they're calling our attention to. See, these Proverbs are not here to chastise the millionaires and billionaires. They're making moral points. But they're making moral points not about wealth. Look again. At the one we just read, 16.8. It's better a little with righteousness than it is to have much with injustice. 
you look again at 15, 17, it says, it is better to have love than to have turmoil. So you see, the Proverbs are looking to make moral points for us. It's not whether you are wealthy or rich that matters. What does your life look like? And now here's the deal. If you're in ancient Israel and you're reading these Proverbs, these are crazy because in, in ancient Israel, and honestly, come, come on, we do the same thing. Wealth is attributed with blessing. The more you have, the more blessed you are. And so the writer of Proverbs, and here at Solomon, he says, I'm going to turn this up on its head. You'd rather be poor with love in your life than wealthy, but your life's in turmoil. It's going down the tubes. You'd rather have little, but you're living a righteous life then you're having a lot, but living an unjust life. So again, the Proverbs are not condemning wealth, nor are they glorifying a lack of wealth. What they're saying is that there's, there's something far greater than material possessions. We get, we get an insight into this in Proverbs 22 too. Rich and poor have this in common. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. The Lord is the maker of them all. So whether you are rich, whether you are poor, one thing is true. The Lord is our maker. Our identity isn't found in our possessions because either rich or poor, we will all exit this world the way we entered it, with nothing. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 7, We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. In other words, ain't nobody going to have a U-Haul in heaven. So church, what is your relationship with wealth like? Do you own your possessions, or do your possessions own you? You might possess a lot, or you might possess a little, but, but here is a dangerous truth that we have to wrestle with, is that we create things, And then those things recreate us. I'm going to use a prop. This iPhone right here. This iPhone is amoral. Okay, It is neither good nor bad. But not one person would be able to say the iPhone has not recreated this entire world in every single one of us that possesses, unless unless you have had the wisdom and foresight to to not buy an iPhone or some type of smartphone to my non-Apple Fools, I'm just kidding, you're not fools. <laughs> to my non-Apple friends, I love you, Tim. The, the smartphone has recreated our entire society. What owns us? Do we own our possessions or do our possessions own us? See, the iPhone, the smartphone is amoral. It's about what we do. It's about how it affects us. It's about how it changes us that matters. It's the things that we own that affect us. But, you know, sometimes also it's the lack of things that we own. So, so I wonder, just to, just to turn the tables a little bit for us, if you're someone who, who maybe doesn't have as much as your neighbor, I, just, I wonder, are you tempted to look at your Christian friends who buy expensive cars and take nice long vacations and judge them in your heart? See, we, we, we might not ever say it with our lips, or at least not to their faces, but in our hearts, we judge them. We think, oh, that could have been used for better purposes. So what we're trying to see here is that our position in life 
shapes our outlook and our possession, perception of others. It's why the Proverbs say in, in 28.25, if you want to flip over to that, Proverbs 28.25, the greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. I'll read it again. The greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. And greed is not limited to the wealthy or to the poor, to the rich or to those who have little. What it says is, I want, but I cannot have. And the temptation of the greedy is to slander and cut down those who do. It's the have-nots cutting down the haves. Because if I cannot have it, I will at least try to destroy them in my heart, the one who does. So here's what I hope you're beginning to see. That the starting point with treasures and wealth is not in the treasures themselves. It's not in what we possess in and of themselves, as if, as if what we own are moral decision makers. The problem for us is in our hearts. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't need to tell you this, but we have very sinful hearts. So, wealth is amoral, but our hearts are sinful, which is our second point this morning. But our hearts are sinful. We're going to take a slight detour. We're going to come back. We're going to take a slight detour as we start this second point. Because as we deal with money, we need to deal with something that's pervasive in Christianity right now, something that is an export primarily of American Christianity. I wonder if you have heard about the prosperity gospel. It's a phrase coined by theologians to condemn the message that some preach that God's desire for you is health, wealth, and happiness. And one major proponent of this message, someone you may have heard of, his name is Creflo Dollar. If that's his real name, that is incredible. But Creflo Dollar, he is the senior pastor of World Changers Church in Georgia. And a little less than a decade ago, he came under scrutiny because he was trying to raise money for what he called a big ask of God. You see, his ministries are worldwide. You may have seen his, his videos on, on you know, one of the uh, Christian broadcasting networks or on YouTube. And he was pleading with his supporters to support him for 300 U.S. dollars. It's not very much, you know, just asking 200,000 of his closest friends for $300. He was trying to raise $60 million, which again, what, what have we been saying? It's, it, it, wealth is amoral. There, there's nothing wrong with raising $60 million, assuming you're doing it for the right reasons. I, I know of a church uh, across the country that is trying to, to, to raise $10 million because they want to double the size of their auditorium so that they don't have to go to, to two services, but they can put everyone in one service. Now, you may disagree with that, but the idea is let's, let's expand the walls so that we can all fit together, and it, it's, it's going to cost a lot of money. But what Creflo Dollar was raising $60 million to do was to buy a private jet. To, to fly around the world and not use commercial airlines. See, he travels for his ministry, so it was this ministry that he was trying to raise money for, right? And, and not only that, but here was his justification as, as he was being pressed on it, as he was being asked about it. His justification was this, and this goes into his theology. If I want to believe God for a private jet, then I will believe God for a private jet. And now here's the application to you. Believe God for what you want, 
And if you believe enough, he's going to give it to you. Sounds pretty good, right? And one of the first ways you believe God is, is going to bless you is you, you give to the funding of this private jet because, because God showed him that he needs it, and so therefore you need to support the Lord's work. If that sounds weird, if it smells off, you've got a good sniffer. See, the prosperity gospel teaches us to live for the Lord's blessings now. It says, name what you want, live the right way, and claim your victory. The prosperity gospel asks the question, do you want to be rich? Who's going to say no? Believe God and he will make you rich. That's his desire for you, healthy and wealthy. Well, Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to gain the kingdom of heaven. Paul says in in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. But the prosperity gospel preacher comes along and he says, no, no, God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be rich. And if you believe in God, you will have a blessed life free of pain and suffering. And, and I just got to say, one of the worst parts about the prosperity gospel is that these peddlers don't limit themselves to the wealthy West. They fly to some of the poorest nations in the earth. They build, they fill these stadiums. They go to places that are poor, poorer places in Africa, in the Philippines. They gather people and they tell them this message. And they leave people destitute because they collect their offerings, they collect their money, and they fly away. They give them an alternative gospel because no longer is the gospel come and suffer with Jesus. It is come and receive health wealth, and happiness in this life because that's what Jesus wants for you. There's no wonder it's so attractive, especially if you, lead, if you live a very poor and sick life. Well, church, I want you to be aware of these types of preachers. I want you to watch out for what you see on TV. Be aware of these messages because people like Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, just to name a few of the more popular names, are promoting dangerous, and I'll say anti-Christian messages. Brothers and sisters, they are offering you an alternative gospel. So before we continue, I just want to give you a few ways to identify the prosperity gospel. If your sniffer says it's probably off, you're probably onto something first. But let me just give you a few hard and fast truths. You want to listen as you hear these preachers for a doctrine of suffering. See, if you only hear promises of health and wealth, then, you're mi- then they're missing the New Testament message of come and die for Jesus and suffer for his namesake. So first, listen for a doctrine of suffering. Second, are you being called to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to say yes to Christ, and to say no to self? See, the prosperity gospel is all about self. It's all about pleasing yourself. Third, do they actually teach the scriptures or just use them to further their point? It, it can be slippery. So, so the proverb I read earlier, three, Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, that said, honor the Lord with your wealth and your, your, with the first fruits of all your produce and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Imagine if I just took that verse and I said, brothers and sisters, if you just give, the Lord's going to outgive you. He's going to give you tremendously. Look at that. You give of your first fruits. He's going to fill your barns and your vats will be bursting with wine or because or, we're a Baptist church, grape juice. 
You give to God, and he will outgive you tremendously. Now line up and give to me, the man of God. But Proverbs 23, 4, and 5 says, says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone. Oh, the, that message of Proverbs says, don't give yourself to, to pursuing wealth. Don't let that be the driver of your heart, because it's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But you see how easy it is to twist the scriptures, to let it teach what we want it to teach. So we've got to watch out. And finally, fourth, beware of someone who's always promoting their life as, an example, as the example, as, as the good life. So you want to look out for someone who starts to say, look how God has blessed me. He wants to bless you the same way. If only you will do this, right? They hold up their life and they hold up what they do as the example for the blessed life. So let's, let's look for teachers who make much of Jesus and little of themselves. You know, I'm reminded of the phrase that was etched into the pulpit at my previous church, which read, sir, we would see Jesus. Look for preachers making much of Jesus, not their blessed life. See, what this long point about the prosperity gospel was meant to show us is how craven our sinful hearts are. We, see, we want to hear that message, right? We desire to hear that message, believe God for a bigger paycheck, and that's what he'll give you. But as some of you know, sometimes your raises don't always keep a pace with the raises in your rent. See, some of you know that your finances are not always blessed. Some of you have found that you've invested half of your retirement only to have it swindled and lost. And sometimes you just have to keep working to ages you never expected to work. See, there is no magic formula in Scripture for getting away from suffering. But our sinful hearts, friends, desires comfort. Which is why we must be on guard. See, because if you're like me, you're okay with not being rich. The problem is you just want everything. You want all the comforts of this life. Your heart craves, and if you're like me, you want what you, what's the phrase, you, you cannot have. And so you buy it with money you do not ha- you want what you do not need so you buy it with money with what you do not have to impress people you do not like with things that you do not need like the proverbs say one person pretends to be rich yet has nothing but it's hard for us because we friends we brothers and sisters we live in a land that was built on consumption that's how this this land turns the, the message of Scripture is to n- deny yourself and be content with what you have. But the message we're told day in and day out is buy, buy, buy. A- and don't just buy because you need it. Buy because you deserve it. You deserve this new iPhone. You deserve this new watch. You deserve this new condo. You deserve this new vacation. This is, this is the, the whole argument that, that the timeshare salesman tried to make to me and my wife. I just wanted my free trip to, to Hawaii. But what he said is, he said, you deserve this. And I said, I said friend, I do not deserve that. Because I'm, you know, I'm told she's about Christian. I said, I deserve death. And, uh, and he said, oh, you're a Christian. <laughs> he said, he said well, what about Proverbs 37, 4? Take delight in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of this heart. You deserve this timeshare. God will give it to you if you desire it. 
I didn't have time to do a message or a class on exegesis. But that's the message we're told, right? God will give you what you desire. He will satisfy every want and desire. But the Proverbs and Scripture paint a different picture. Proverbs 12, 9 says, Better to be a nobody and yet have a servant than pretend to be somebody and have no food. Brothers and sisters, we need to live contently with the wealth that God has given us. But it's hard for us because we always want more. We always want it to be easy. You know, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It's a good question. Who can understand our sinful hearts? The very next verse tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. Our hearts are sinful, as we continue to say. And the Lord knows the depths of our sinful hearts, which is both a comfort and a terror. Psalm 139 opens with, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And the end of Psalm 139 concludes this way, Search me, God, and know my heart. Lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the New Testament picks up this message of, of the Lord knowing the heart. Luke 9, 47, it, it, Luke records, Jesus knowing their thoughts, or as other, version, other part of the Bible translated, hearts. And Luke 16, 15 you are ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of God, but God knows your hearts. See, our hearts are desperately sick. We cannot understand our own hearts, but the Lord does. He knows what's within. He knows what we desire, and he understands it much more than you and I could ever imagine. The Lord knows our hearts. He knows that our hearts crave what we cannot have, what we cannot touch, what we cannot taste. The Lord knows, friends, that our hearts are restless. Our hearts long to attach itself to those things and those possessions and the wealth that we have that's not from God. But those things never satisfy. As Proverbs 4.23 instructs us, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. The actions of our life flow out of our heart. As Jesus said, it's not what goes into the mouth that corrupts, but what comes out of the heart. Brothers and sisters, our wealth is amoral, as we've been saying. But our hearts are constantly inclined towards evil. And if this has felt weighty, it's meant to feel weighty because we need to deal with what's inside of our heart. We are constantly bent towards destruction, our hearts are idol factories, always looking for something else to worship. Which is why, friends, we don't need a better wealth. We don't need more earthly possessions. We need a new heart. We need a better treasure. Like I said, our hearts are, our, our, our wealth is amoral, but our hearts are sinful. And I have one more point for us to consider this morning. Therefore, friends, we must treasure Christ above all else. Our hearts are restless. As Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in Christ. 
Our hearts long for earthly possessions. Our hearts long to cling to what we have, to hold it tight, to never let it go, to build bigger barns, to fill it more, to take comfort in our treasures on this earth. Even if we only have a little, the temptation remains to hold tight to those meager possessions that we have and to forsake the Lord. These are our treasures, and we often fail to guard our hearts towards them. But if these are our treasures, there's a, there's a, there's a question. It begs a question. If these are our treasures, what? See, we're Christians. We need to ask this question. What are the treasures of God? What are the treasures and the wealth of God? See, this whole sermon, we've considered our treasures. We've considered what we find to be beautiful, what we find to be necessary for ourselves. But what are, what are God's treasures? Well, scriptures are clear. God's treasures, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew eleven forty four and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. One more for us. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the kingdom of heaven is the rule and reign of Christ. The both already, Christ is already ruling and the not yet. He has not yet returned to consummate and to finalize his kingdom. The Jesus is especially keen in his ministry to declare the kingdom of heaven. Mark 1.14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Those two phrases are the same, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. See, with the coming of Jesus, in broke the kingdom of God. See, you, you've probably heard of the phrase an eruption, right? Like a volcanic eruption. Well, with Jesus, it was an eye eruption, which is a, a breaking in, not a, not a breaking out like a volcano, but a breaking in that the, the treasure of heaven broke in to earth. See, we're coming on, up on Advent, which marked the eruption, the eye, the eye eruption of the kingdom of heaven into the kingdom of earth. And, and with the coming of Jesus comes the fullness of the wealth and wisdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is like a treasure hidden in a field. What will you give up to have him? Friend, if you're here this morning with us and you're not a Christian, so glad that you've joined us. Here's my question for you. Is your heart satisfied? Have you been wrestling this morning at all with your possessions and what you have and, and what they've done to you? See, like I've been saying, wealth is amoral, but that doesn't mean that we ha- what we have cannot affect us. We tend to worship our possessions and the wealth that we have. We aspire to have more and more of it. But what the, the Proverbs teach us is that actually Christ embodies all that we need. Proverbs 8, 18, and 19 says, With me, wisdom, or Christ, are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Later in Proverbs 22, 4, it says, Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. 
See, what we have been given is something far greater than wealth. Something far greater than financial prosperity in this world. What we've been given is Jesus. See, what God's word calls us to do is is to take our eyes, which, brothers and sisters, our eyes, and, and if you're not a Christian, our eyes are so often turned inward. And what the word, what God's word says is that we need to turn our eyes upward and to look and see how the treasures of heaven came down and became the treasures of earth. In Jesus, the wisdom that was from above came below and dwelt among us. Wisdom was and is embodied in Jesus. See, and Jesus rejected what the world even then would have called the satisfying life. Jesus ate with the lowest of the low. He healed the blind. He made the disabled to walk. He didn't own great things. He didn't even have a place to lay his head at night. But in God's wisdom, Jesus went to the cross so that the greatest treasure of all time would be delivered to those who deserved it the least. See, friends, our, what we deserve is poverty. We are souls without Christ are in poverty. But Jesus gives us the greatest treasure of all because on the cross he paid the penalty for our sins in our place. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what I want you to know is that when Jesus died, the grave could not hold the treasure of heaven because he rose and conquered death so that you and I can have eternal life. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I would love to talk to you more about this. I'll be standing outside in the back after the service. I would love to talk to you more about the treasure that we find in Christ. So church, as you remember the gospel story and are reminded of the great treasure that we have in Christ, what I, what I hope is that our hearts are stirred to make Christ the supreme treasure of our life. See, our sinful hearts are always drifting away from Christ. But what scriptures say is that he has given us himself. He is the key to the treasure of heaven and all the treasures on this earth. When we treasure Christ above all else, it gives us the freedom to walk not in the shackles of our own wealth and of our own possessions, but in Christ. You know, the things we own, what we said earlier, the things we own eventually own us, but not in Christ. Because in Christ, we are freed from what we have, whether it be little or a lot. And can I just encourage you all? Church, I am so encouraged in the ways that I see you all doing this. In the ways that I see you treasuring Christ above the, the, health, the comforts of this world. Not only do you give generously, to the, to, financially to the work of this church, you give yourselves. You are all giving yourselves to the fellowship of this church. We have to keep creating new community groups because you all just keep coming. And they're getting too big. It's a good problem to have. But what it shows is that you're treasuring the body of Christ. You're treasuring one another. You're seeing that the treasures we have together are greater than, than, than the possessions of this life, than the, the treasures that the world would call of this life. It shows me that you treasure Christ. And you treasure each other because of Christ. So if we want to properly orient our treasures and treasure Christ above all else, we must remember these words that Paul gives to Timothy. These were read earlier in the service. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
But what is it that flows from a love of earthly treasures? Paul says that those who have too great of a love for money wandered from the faith. They pierced themselves with many griefs. So the lesson of Paul is to pursue poverty. No, no, no. That would undermine my whole sermon. That is not the message of poverty, of, of, of Paul. The prophets reject that. What Paul instructs Timothy on what to do is to flee, not money, flee the love of money. See, we have to, we have to finally divide that. Flee the love of money and do what? Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Turn and flee from our sinful love of earthly treasures and take hold of Christ, who is the greatest treasure of our faith. Our wealth is amoral, but our hearts are full of sin. And if we want to reject the idols of our heart, if we do not want to make a shipwreck of our faith, then, brothers and sisters, we must treasure Christ above all else. And the question that I want to leave all of us with this morning is this. Is Christ your true treasure? Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would be our true treasure. That we would cherish you above all else. That we would desire to know you above everything else. God, would you help us? Would you shape our hearts so that they are shaped like you? That we would desire only what you desire. We pray this all in your name. Amen.